Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome back. So as we've been discussing, um, you know, Canada's decision to delay second doses by up to 16 weeks has, has certainly raised some eyebrows. Look, there, there's obviously some protection that comes from a first dose. I, I get the idea of wanting to maximize that, but um, we, we do seem to be going further than, than other countries are. There's probably some room for flexibility, but uh, 16 weeks is definitely at the upper end of that. Now, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization made the recommendation uh, to that end. It's up to the provinces to choose whether or not to follow it. I believe all provinces are uh, now planning to do so. And maybe it's a consequence of, of making do with the supply we have, and perhaps additional supply could render some of this moot. Uh, but let me just play for you before we get to our next guest, because um, Teresa Tam, who's one of the recipients uh, of this uh, open letter we'll discuss, was asked directly about it uh, by Global's David Aiken. I just want to play part of her response. Here's uh, Chief Public Health Officer Teresa Tam, uh, why she's uh, okay with this approach, this clip four. First of all, is increasing evidence of the efficacy, uh, the effectiveness in uh, real time gathered from different countries, as well as domestically of the effectiveness of that first dose. And the interval or the amount of data that was gathered um, really amounts to about uh, two months and counting. You know, every day you get a, a bit more uh, information on that interval. And at that point in time, the effectiveness is high. And so at the two-month interval, when the effectiveness is high, it is not expected that that kind of protection will suddenly disappear overnight. And so the committee looked at, well, what would happen to that immune response based on existing knowledge about vaccines and immunology already in place. So if that level of immunity is not expected to suddenly drop, Increasing the flexibility of um, the ability of the provinces to deliver that first dose, which is really safe and effective to as many people as possible to prevent deaths and hospitalizations, is paramount at a point in time where, as I said, we're in a bit of a delicate situation when the epidemiology is that we still have thousands of cases a day, hospitalizations and deaths. This was felt to be the most um, important uh, objectives. Okay, so there's the response from Dr. Tam. So as mentioned, this letter was sent to both Dr. Tam and the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, raising some concerns about this approach. Joining us uh, to talk more about it, one of the signatories of that letter. Uh, joining us on the line here this afternoon for some input on this, very pleased to welcome to the program, Dr. Eleanor Fish, uh, Professor, Director of Arthritis and Autoimmunity Research Center, Canada Research Chair in Women's Health and Immunobiology, also Senior Scientist, Division of Advanced Diagnostics, Toronto General Research Institute, University Health Network. 
Dr. Fish, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, and good afternoon. Okay, so you, you, you've heard uh, Dr. Tam's answer to this. Obviously, you've seen uh, the, the recommendation from the uh, NACI, but uh, what are your concerns? Let's start there. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody is arguing that um, that partial protection afforded by a first dose of these RNA vaccines uh, certainly does persist and, and is likely to persist um, certainly beyond the three weeks um, uh, that the second dose was administered at. Uh, nobody's arguing that. Um, the vast majority of data on that is associated with the what we call the antibody response, okay? Because mm -hmm. most people, when they think about a vaccine, they look at what's the amount of neutralizing antibody. But we've certainly known um, the last little while that most of the heavy lifting with these, uh, this infection and the immune response to it, and certainly with the vaccine, is probably due to um, an, another facet of the immune response. It's called the T-cell response. So you have to look at both of these, and, and we're accumulating data on both. But let, let's get back to the point. Partial protection, no question, and it's likely to persist for a while. What the concern is, is that partial protection still has the potential, let's say for somebody who's um, partially protected, um, they may have a good, what we call T-cell response, and they may have some antibodies, but they so they may be protected from, as, as Dr. Tam said, severe infection and hospitalization. But there's the potential that over time they are still able to uh, transmit or become infected and transmit infection. And the problem there is, you know, we don't know what they will be exposed to. We know absolutely with the B. 1351 variant that um, certainly the Pfizer vaccine doesn't afford any protection as far as we know in the first dose and you have to have two doses. So if somebody somebody's exposed to that and they only have, you know, <laughs> minimal, let's say limited protection, let's not even say no protection, mm -hmm. you know, then they transmit that, then suddenly you see an in increase in infection rate. So the concern from those that were signatories to that letter is, we do not know what the potential is for continuing infection rates in those who might spread the virus and are only partially protected. And the reality is that Pfizer and Moderna have also said that we need to follow the clinical trial data. Whenever um, any drug, a therapeutic or a vaccine is approved, it's approved based on very stringent uh, data analysis from clinical trials. This is why we do clinical trials, um, accumulating many participants over many months, following the safety, the efficacy, all kinds of analysis, blood work, you know, incredible analysis. And based on that, a medication is approved. And there's a very specific, what we call product monograph, which says, this is the dose, this is how you administer it. And with these vaccines, the data was based on a, you know, let's say a three week delay between first and second dose. And that's what we should be following in the absence of any clinical trial data that says it's okay to extend that uh, period between first and second dose. 
So yes, you know, it, it's you know, it, you weigh the, the pros and the cons, and it, and it's a gamble whether it's best to protect, partially protect more people um, than fewer people. Where you know there'll be some that are zero protection. But our concern is, what about the potential for breakout and increased infection rates? And secondly, if I can keep going on and on, no, um, <laughs> worldwide, um, people are following the protocol, and certainly Pfizer and Moderna and these companies that have, are following their cohorts, they're going to make recommendations on potential boosts perhaps a year from now based on them following those individuals to see how their immune response persists for how long, you know, whether it falls off and if at that time you need to come in with a new boost. Well, if we go rogue and do a completely different scenario, how are we going to know when we should be boosting? Right. So, so there are a lot of concerns. Um, and I think what the, this letter was all about, it's let's have um, some discussion about the, the absolute evidence. Let's make evidence-based decisions. Um, and, and that's yeah. where we're coming from. Well, let me let me see this, and it's interesting because on the question of real world data uh, and, and clinical trial data, the the NACI seems conflicted when it comes to the AstraZeneca vaccine and seniors. The the uh, council or the committee is is rather cautious on that point, but and when it comes to to the uh, interval, it seems like a different approach. Now we we do have, I mean, you know, the UK has taken a twelve week uh, interval approach, and I suppose we could look to to some of the British data and and see some encouraging things. But what do you make of that question, though? To what extent we we incorporate this real world data alongside what the clinical trials tell us? Well, again, I'd, I'd ask the question, you know. The real-world data, you, you've thrown the dice and said, we're going to do it for 12 weeks, and they, they went ahead in the absence of any, you know, uh, uh, clinical trial data. What they seem to have seen is that they're, you know, that they're, it's, it's okay. But the question is, now we have these variants of concern. It's a completely different scenario. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, I'd be very cautious to look to real-world data uh, unless they have significant numbers of variants and concerns circulating in those communities where they have changed their dosing schedule. I, you know, let, let, let's see what happens there. And I certainly don't urge Canada to be the first in line to do that real-world experiment. For the reasons that I've uh, indicated, um, you know, if you have a, if you have an increase in infection rates, which are the ones that are going to be dominant? Which are the ones that are going to be the most prevalent in our communities? Those are the ones for which those vaccines will be least effective. Now, part of this is is a question of of supply, and if we had sufficient supply, this would all be a moot point. And and or if we just the, had one dose, like Johnson, well, Johnson yeah, that too. Would be a moot point. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I guess we we don't know exactly uh, when those will be coming or how much we'll be getting, but mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. perhaps perhaps uh, the supply situation will change more favorably, and and you know, we can we can do this on on a more realistic timeline here. But in lieu of that. You know, would it make sense to at least prioritize certain groups when it comes to to sticking more closely to those right. recommendations? Could could we shift uh, the approach a bit? Absolutely. So that that's what um, we suggested in our letter that at a minimum, 
um, we should not deviate from the uh, the recommended or the directed schedule by the manufacturers, by Pfizer and, and Moderna, uh, at least in the elderly and the immunocompromised. Let's not put them because they're going to be partially, you know, they're not going to have the best immune response anyhow to the vaccine. Right. So let's not put them at even greater risk of an even more reduced uh, immune response and an even greater potential to, you know, spread infection. So at a minimum, we've asked that they do not deviate uh, with the, as I said, the elderly and the immunocompromised. Well, I mean, in a related what question. the reaction to that is. <laughs> Yes. Well, and I wonder, too, because there, there is some evidence suggesting that for those who have previously been infected, uh, a single dose, a booster, might be sufficient. Now, if, if we took that approach, that a single dose for anybody who's previously been infected, that might free up some additional doses to, to address, as you say, ensuring we can get a second dose in, into certain groups. But is, is that an advisable approach? How do, how do we deal with, with those? Again, until you've done the trial that follows a significant number of people to show the durability of yeah. that protection, so you're infected, you get a first dose, you get protection, how long does that last? Do you still need to give a boost? Until you've done those studies, you're taking a gamble. Now, I understand it's a pandemic and it's appropriate to... And take certain, I don't want to say gambles, but you know, you know, look to see what's what's likely to be the most appropriate response. But I think when you're dealing with, as I said, the potential to um, increase the dominant strain to be one that would be, uh, you know, resistant or, or not as well, um, you know, protected from with a vaccine, it's a dangerous scenario to march down that path. Um, that's what, you know, my perspective as an immunologist, if somebody works with viruses, you know, uh, I'm, I'm looking from that perspective. Um, and certainly I'm in, in discussion with many of my MD colleagues, my ID specialist colleagues, um, but I bring to bear the knowledge or the expertise associated with an immune response to a virus infection. And that's what causes me to be cautious about mm -hmm. moving down a path, essentially, where we don't know what the negative outcome might be. Some important points. Uh, Dr. Fish, we'll leave it there. Appreciate your insight on all of this. And uh, thanks again for making some time for us here today. Okay, but the main point is everyone should continue to consider vaccines to be the best strategy right now. So go yes. ahead and get your vaccine. Absolutely. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Eleanor Fish, immunologist, uh, University of Toronto, Toronto General Research Institute. So one of the signatories to this letter uh, to Dr. Teresa Tam, to the NACI, saying here's our concerns with this approach. OK, we got to take a break here. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.